compassion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching people with Jesus. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. If you're somebody who's new, my name is Kurt. I'm one of the pastors. It is great to have you this morning. This, today we are going to be continuing in our study of First Samuel. Um, by the way, we are almost at the end of this study. Next week, we will finish the book. Then after that, we're going to go into our Christmas series called Good News of Great Joy. But just to tell you, to, to be able to finish on time and to be able to start the Christmas series when we need to start the Christmas series, I need to do something I haven't done before in this series, which is we are going to cover two chapters today instead of one. We have a lot of text to cover, but it's actually going to work, okay, because these two chapters, which are 1 Samuel 29 and chapter 30, are really all about one subject. The subject is how David has backslidden in his faith. David has fallen away from God in his faith, and these chapters are about how God restores David back to him. Chapter 29 is how God saves David from the incredible mess he made of his life. And then chapter 30 is how God saves David's heart and then brings him back to him. Now, if you are somebody who is here this morning and you have backslidden in your faith, you may have walked away from Christ, you have, may have walked away from the church, this message is for you. This is God's word to those who have backslidden this morning. And I think that's all of us, at least, from time to time. So let's begin by getting your outlines out. Let me give you some background you'll need to know. Remember what's been happening in the previous chapters. In 1 Samuel chapter 27, remember that uh, David was just exhausted. He was tired of running from Saul, who was constantly trying to kill him. Now, even though God had been faithful, and it always protected David, so Saul could never take his life. David was tired of it. So he decided instead of following God and his plans, he'd follow his own plans. He'd try his own wit, his own strategies to protect himself. And he left the land of Israel and he decided to hide, to hide among the enemy, the Philistines. And it was sort of a split issue. I mean, in some ways, David did find right away some relief from Saul chasing him. He finally had some rest. But it came with incredible cost. The cost was to David's character. Because to survive among the enemies, David had to constantly lie. David had to constantly deceive. David actually became a ruthless killer who snuffed the life out of anyone who could possibly ever reveal his secret double life. Now, David lived this double life so successfully that Achish, the king of Gath, who was a Philistine king or lord, forcibly enlisted David into the Philistine army. David was going to be forced to fight against his own people. Now, prior to this, we know that David had done everything not to put his hand out against the Lord's anointed. Now he was enlisted in the Philistine army and he would be forced to fight against the Lord's anointed. How would he get out of that one? Chapter 27 ended on a cliffhanger. It didn't tell us what happened. 
We went to chapter 28, which we studied last week. Chapter 28 left the topic of David and moved on to Saul. We saw, saw that King Saul, under pressure, knowing that this Philistine invasion was coming, actually decided to turn to a witch for guidance and stop trying to trust in God for guidance. It was a complete mess. Then it goes back to chapter 29, where we find ourselves this morning. In chapter 29, it's the story of David and how God will eventually save him from the mess he's made of his life. The pickle he's got himself in now that he's forcibly enlisted in the Philistine army. Now, chapter 29 does not just shift the topic back from Saul in chapter 28 back to David in chapter 29, but it actually shifts the chronology a little bit. What took place in chapter 28 that we studied last week was when the uh, Philistine army had actually already amassed in the area called Shunem in the north. We'll look at this a little bit more uh, in a few minutes. But chapter 29 takes place while the Philistine army was still at a staging area, an area called Aphek in the south. So chapter 29 is actually a few days or maybe a week or so prior to when chapter 28 takes place. And as I said, these two chapters, 29 and 30, they're the story of God rescuing David from his backslidden life. A man who was in a relationship with God, as we know, has walked away from his relationship with God, decided to rely on his own wit and wisdom, and now God needs to bring him back. So everything we're going to develop this morning is under this big question, how does God show grace to the backslidden? Let's begin with this. The first thing we see is this. God saves us from ourselves. Beginning in verse 1. Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek, and the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. We need to know this is not a minor border skirmish between the Israelites and the Philistines. This is a major battle. It says here the Philistines had gathered all of their forces. Every single army unit in the entire Philistine nation was poised and fixed on this particular event which, by the way, left the rest of the Philistine nation unprotected. That will become very important for us to know in uh, about 20 minutes later when we get to the next chapter. Now, it says they were at Aphek, and I told you that was a staging area where they assembled their forces before they went north to the area of Shunem, which is where we were at last week. Let me show you a little map of that. You can see Aphek is there in the south, Shunem is in the north where the battle will eventually take place. Mount Gilboa is just below Shunem. Next week, Saul will die on Mount Gilboa in that battle. So that gives you an idea how this is all going to unfold. And the fact that we're talking about Aphek, if you were an Israelite, that would bring really bad memories to mind. The last time we heard about Aphek was in 1 Samuel chapter 4 a while ago. That was the location where the Israelites and the Philistines had a battle, that the, Israelite, the Philistines decimated the Israelites, they captured the Ark of the Covenant, they killed Eli's sons, and it was a terrible result for the Israelites. The fact that Aphek is being mentioned and the Philistines are gathering there has that eerie feeling about it, that history is about to repeat itself. Another massive Israelite defeat is coming. 
Remember that for the last year, David has been far from God. David has been relying on his own wit, his own wisdom, his own plans, and everything about David as he presents himself to people is a lie. These lies have worked so so well, as I said, he has now been forcibly enlisted into the Philistine army. Now in the past, God has saved David from Goliath. In the past, over a dozen times, God has saved David from Saul. But here, in this chapter, God has to save David from himself. And all of his lies, all of his deception, and the incredible mess he has made of his life. Has anybody been there? Has anybody turned their back on God? Anybody here tried living on their own, by their own wisdom, by their own plans, and they made a complete mess of their life? And they needed God to save them? If so, this chapter is for you. Let's continue. And as the lords of the Philistines were passing on by, hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were passing on in the rear with Achish, the commanders of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, Well, is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years? And since he deserted to me, I found no fault in him to this day. We learned this earlier. The Philistine nation was actually run by uh, five lords. Sometimes you may call it five kings. It's the, the Philistine board of directors, if you would have it that way. They had five major cities, and each one of these lords ran a city, and they all got together, and they made a decision. And since it was an odd number, they always could come to a decision. And the, the lords are gathered here at Aphek, and they're reviewing the troops as they're marching out in front of them. And the last set of troops to march in front of them are Achish's troops. And at the end of Achish's troops, almost like a forgotten little remnant, are David and his men. I think Achish was hoping that the, the other Philistine lords would just be tired of this inspection and let David and his men move on. But while David successfully lied and tricked Achish into his true character and true nature. <clears throat> David could not lie and trick the other Philistine lords. They looked at David and his men and said, what in the world are these guys doing here? We do not want them with us. And there's two reasons that the Philistine lords do not want them. The first reason I call is just plain old the wisdom of war. It says this, But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. <clears throat> and the commanders of the Philistines said to him, Send the man back, that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men who are here? They say, if we are going to be fighting Israelites in the front of us, the last thing we want to have happen is all of a sudden starting to find ourselves fighting Israelites in the rear of us. If David and his men are all the way at the back, the last thing we need is to have him attack at that point. 
After all, I, we know that David is estranged from Saul. But if David wants to put himself back into the good graces of Saul, wouldn't the easiest thing for him to do simply be attack us in the midst of the battle? Uh, we don't trust him. Achish, get rid of him. Send him back home. And the second reason they give for not wanting David in the battle is they simply know his history. They remember the song sung, the song sung about David when they were in elementary school. You say, well, what songs were they? Remember after David killed Goliath? Remember the famous victory song that the women sang that was known not just in Israel, but all throughout the Philistines? It's this in the next verse. Is not this David, of whom they sing to one another in dances, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. Achish, David is a legendary killer, a complete war machine. He struck down ten thousands of people who were, guess what? All Philistines. We're Philistines. We do not want him behind our lines in our most vulnerable spots. Now, what happens next is actually a little bit humorous. Remember, for the last 12 to 16 months, David has been constantly lying to Achish, deceiving Achish, making, think, making Achish think like, I'm on your team, I'm loyal to you, I'm good to you. But in reality... Uh, David has been raiding people in Philistine territory, wiping them out, not leaving a survivor, bringing their stuff back to Achish and saying, by the way, these all come from the Israelites, and that's not true at all. Constantly lying to him and constantly deceiving him. Look what Achish says to David at this point. Then Achish called David and said to him, as the Lord lives, you have been honest no, you haven't. He's a complete liar. And to me, it seems right that you should march out and in with me in the campaign. For I have found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. Well, that's only because you haven't discovered it. David's a complete lying, cheating, murderous thief who is a good liar is what he is. Nevertheless, the Lord do not approve of you. So go back now and go peaceably that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. Boy, is David a good liar. He's good at living a double life for over a year. My question for you is, are you like David? Have you been living a double life? You come to church on Sunday and you you're with your friends. You come to around others and you look like a wonderful, upstanding man or, or woman of God. But behind the scenes, with people who truly know you, with God who really sees you, are you a liar? Are you a cheater? Are you a deceiver? I mean, David may have been able to trick Achish, but realize in all of this, David was not tricking God. God knows David's heart. He knows David's lies. He knows our heart. He knows our lies. 
while we see how completely David has fooled Achish, the words that sort of come next are not the words we would expect to hear. When David hears that he's been kicked out of the Philistine army and he has to go home and he doesn't have to fight his own people, we would think David is going, ho, ho, perfect, perfect. Man, I'm rescued. But that's not the response that David has. In fact, David acts rather disappointed that he can't continue in the fight. Look at this. But David said to Achish, what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my Lord the King? You know, when I first read that, when I was studying this chapter the first time through, I said, this doesn't make sense. David is now disappointed. He doesn't get to fight against his own people. That seems backwards. I thought he wanted to be rescued from fighting against his own people. And then I thought about it a little bit more. And here, here's what I think. There's two options that are going on here. The first one is this. David's frustration when he wasn't allowed to fight with the Philistines may have been just another plank in his deception of Achish. After all, when Achish told him to go home, if he all of a sudden started cheering, yay, Achish would go, why do you want to go home? I thought you'd be disappointed. To keep up the deception, he has to pretend like he's sad about it. In fact, you notice what David says? What did you find in me? Was there a reason that I have to go home? He's prying, wants to see if his lies have been finally exposed. Now that's what I think is going on. There are some other Bible scholars that feel it a little bit different is what's happening here. I think David's frustration when he wasn't allowed to fight with the Philistines may have been genuine because he did plan to turn against them in the heat of the battle. Uh, like the Philistine lords suspected. And that's a possibility. But either way, it doesn't really matter. Here's the point. God has graciously rescued David from the incredible mess he made of his life. From his own lies, his own deception, all of the tangled web he's made, God just went out of his way to rescue David, even when David wasn't seeking God or trying to find rescue from God. Have you been there? Has God rescued you from the mess you made in your life? And you look back on it now. Now you can see how good God was to you by shutting a door of opportunity. Now you can see how when God shut something on you, it's because he loved you. He was rescuing you. He was saving you from the stupidity of your own plans. Has anybody else been there? Oh, I have. The text continues. And Achish answered David and said, I know that you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. <laughs> right. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, He shall not go up with us to the battle. Now then, rise early in the morning, and with the servants of your Lord who came with you, and start early in the morning, and depart as soon as you have light. Do you see the humor in this? 
Achish is apologizing to David for the fact that David will not be allowed to fight against his own people. Sort of funny how this whole thing changes. Achish apologizing to David, but David is the one who's a liar and deceiver. And then we read this in verse 11. So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. But the Philistines went up to Jezreel. No, that's the end of this chapter, but before we go on to the next one, let me just stop and drive home this application of what we learned. God saves us from ourselves. He saved David from his lies, because David was caught in the, his own tangled web, his mess of life. God saved David from being forced to fight with the Philistines and the mess he has made. Now, David did not deserve to be saved by God. At this point, David had still turned his back on God. Yet even while David's back was turned on God, God still loved him. God still saved him from the mess he has made of his life. Now, I do not know what kind of mess you have made of your life this morning. I do not know how far away from God you have walked. I do not know how backslidden you are in your faith, but you need to know that God still loves you. God loves you enough to rescue you from the complete mess you've made of your life, even when you weren't seeking him and interested in him with your life. God still loves you. God is still pursuing you. And God is still wants to show grace to you. God saves us from ourselves. He is so gracious to backsliders. Second thing we see here is God's grace saves us in unexpected ways, doesn't it? Who would have guessed that the way God would save David from having to fight against his own people was God would turn the heart of the Philistine lords against him so he'd be kicked out of the army. God saved David by changing the heart of God's enemies. The heart of those Philistine lords was in God's hands, not in their hands. The point is this. When in our life we see no hope of rescue, when in our life we see no hope of the future, when in our life we see no way out, God still has over a thousand options at his disposal to save us that we would never see, that we would never guess, and we would never expect. That is the God we serve. Folks, that is why we do not lose hope. Even though we cannot see a way that we could be rescued, God always has a way that he can rescue. Who would have ever guessed that God would change the hearts of the Philistine lords against David and kick him out. The Bible says this, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he wills. Another application point out of this chapter is this, God's grace doesn't give up on us no matter how far we have gone. 
we tend to think of God, my friends, in our own image. We think of God that he's just like us. Do you ever have people in your life, you say, well, I will just give up on that person. I am so frustrated with that person. Let them fry. Let them get what they deserve. That is not the God that David served. That is not the God that we serve. No matter how far David has gone, no matter how ruthless, deceptive, lying, and murderous David has become, God did not give up on him. God still rescued David from his mess when David was still in the midst of rebellion against him. Now you, me, we would have given up on David. We would have said, that's enough. I don't care about him anymore. He gets what he deserves. Let him suffer in his mess. But that is not the God we serve. The God we serve continued to pursue him and continued to love him and graciously rescued him and he didn't deserve any of it. My friends, God's grace to backsliders is he begins by saving us from ourselves and the mess we have made of our life and we deserve none of it. We get to chapter 30 and it continues. God's grace may ruin our life to save our life. Now, God has saved David from the mess he made with, with the Philistines, but there's still a problem. David's heart is far from God, and this chapter is about how God will turn that heart towards home. David and his men left the staging area of Aphek. They began the 60-mile march which was a three-day march home to the uh, city of Ziklag, which was their home in the, the Philistine city where they stayed. Now, you can imagine them as they walked home. They were excited to finally be out of this battle that they did not want to participate in with their, against their own people. They were looking forward to going home and the men to seeing their wives and holding their wives, to seeing their children, to some rest and relaxation with their family at home, but as they grew closer, they could see smoke on the horizon. And as they drew closer, that smoke they realized was coming from the very area of the city they loved and called home. That march soon turned into a full sprint, a race to get home. And when they got there, what they saw with their eyes were the things that nightmares are made of. The text tells us, Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and their sons and daughters taken captive. After all the years of running from Saul, after all the hardships of scraping to survive in the desert, this took the cake. Everything they owned, everything they held dear, was burned to ashes. 
everyone they loved, their children, their wives, their family, it was all gone. Now, we might say, well, at least their wives and their children weren't killed. In this context, in this time, raiders like the Amalekites would come and they wouldn't want to kill the people they, there. They would try to take them captive to sell them into slavery to the godless people and the godless purposes of the nations around them. The idea was your wife would be turned in and sold to some really godless man who would do some really godless things to her along with your children. For many men, that would just be like a fate worse than death. This is what the men felt. Years ago, I had a friend who had just built a, a, a big house. He, he built it. He was a, a craftsman. He built it right on a lake. And one month after he built it, the whole thing burned to the ground. It was a short in his dryer. And thankfully, his uh, wife and children were able to get out. But everything he had spent years building was reduced to ashes. It was devastating for him. I know how devastated he was. Imagine how devastated these men feel when everything they have built is gone and their family, everyone they love is gone. Remember I said earlier it was important to notice that the Philistines had put all of their forces into this battle and they staged it at Aphek. They had left the entire Philistine nation unprotected. The Amalekites, which were a nomadic people, decided to take advantage of this unprotected nation. And they had uh, then looted the Philistines and looted part of the area of Judah, as well as destroyed Ziklag, sort of revenge for what David had done to them. And then we read this. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices, and they wept until they had no more strength to weep. This is the exact bottom. This is the end for these people. This is the worst day of their life. And then we read, And David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. This was not just the men who were suffering, but David was suffering. He had lost the wives he loved. And then we read this, And David was greatly distressed. For the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. David finally hits rock bottom. David, Mr. Confident, Mr. I can lie to everybody. I can manage everybody. I can keep my schemes going for a year. I can even deceive Achish, king of Gath, and get away with it because I'm really good at making life work my ways with my schemes. It all comes to an end right here. David's plans to live life on his own came down crashing to the ground. Even the men that he trusted, the men that he fought with, the men that he loved were so angry at him, they were talking of killing him. He is completely distressed. How did turning your back on God work out for you, David? Living by your own plans, even by your own ways, it didn't work out too well. 
In fact, it brought you to a crashing, burning end. Have you been there? Try to live life your own ways? Follow your own plans? Not consult God? Not obey His Word? Not want to please God? Just what you want to do, because you think you know best. How well did it work out in the end of the day? My guess is that you found yourself in the same place as David, the crashing and burning end. Now, there's a question I have for you here. Uh, why did the tragedy of Ziklag come into David's life? There's really two reasons I think I'd like to point out. The first is simply this. When we sin, we will suffer. Living life by our wisdom instead of God's word always leads to suffering. It does. I know the Bible It has the laws in it, the Ten Commandments. It has God saying, do this, don't do this, all these prohibitions, all these restrictions. And many times, young people look at it and they go, man, this stinks. God, you're trying to ruin my life. You're trying to take away all the fun of life. Man, I'm just going to discard your word and live life on my own. You need to understand all God's laws, all of God's word is given to you because he loves you. All of his commands and all of his restrictions are not because he's trying to ruin you. It's because he's trying to give what is best to you. All of God's intentions are good. If God says, don't do this, it's because doing this will end up ruining your life, not giving joy to your life. You have to understand that. When we sin, we will suffer. It always works that way. And that's how it worked for David. And that is how it will work for you or for me. Secondly, God allowed tragedy in David's life to bring him to the end of himself so he would turn his heart back to God. To save David's life, God had to ruin David's life. Many times, the only way God can get our attention when we're committed to living life our own way and by our own plans is to break us and to crush us and to bring us onto our knees. So we will finally stop running from God and start seeking God. That is why God sends David's life crashing and burning. It's not because he hates him. It's because he loves him and needs to bring him back to him. Maybe that has happened to you. Maybe God has had your life crash and burn. But it's because he's drawing you back to him in his goodness and his grace. And this is what we see happens with David. As soon as we can finish the rest of the verse, here when David is distressed, David is at rock bottom, we read. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Put this in context. David has been living on his own for chapters, and we haven't heard a word about God. This is the first time David turns back to God. Now, what does it mean to be strengthened in God? David prays. David confesses. David calls out to God. And what word God, David did have from God is what he put back into his life. God, he said, 
I'm not going to live it on my own life, on my own strength. I need you. Now, if you are in that spot today where you are at the end of yourself, turn back to God. Strengthen yourself in God just like David did. God will not turn away from you. Today, if you just open your Bible and start reading it, I guarantee you, no matter how far you have gone, no matter how much you have ruined your life, God will start speaking to you. You will find yourself highlighting verses. You will find yourself saying, was that written just for me? Because God loves you. He is so gracious to those who are backslidden. The bullet point is this. Strengthening oneself in God means turning back to God and being in the Bible so we know the truth about God and his promises. And then we read this. And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought him the ephod. Now, if you've been with us for a while, you know the backstory on the priests. Uh, Saul actually killed all the priests in the land. But there was one priest who escaped, which was a young man named Abiathar. He escaped and he brought with him an ephod, which was a priestly garment, which had in it two rocks called an orum and a thorum that the priest could use to directly ask questions to God. And, um, and Abiathar in this ephod has come to David. And even though David has had access to God for all these months and years, he wasn't even interested in talking to God. But now that he has turned back to God, what is the first thing he does? God, I need your help. God, I need your wisdom. God, I need your guidance. And look what it says. David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue this band? Shall I overtake them? And he answered, Pursue them, for you shall surely overtake them and shall surely rescue them. Now, the problem is here, David doesn't know who ruined his town and who took the wives, and he doesn't even know where to go. Remember, the Amalekites are a marauding, nomadic people. All he knows is he has to head into the desert and start looking. I think there's a little lesson here. When we obey God, he usually doesn't give us everything we need to know. Most of the time, God only gives us the next step. Isn't that true? He doesn't tell you how it's all going to end. He just tells you the first step to do and says, will you trust me and will you obey me? And that's what David does. And that brings us to the next point. God's grace is quick to use us when he restores us. So David set out, and the 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook Besor, where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued, he and 400. 200 stayed behind, who were too exhausted to cross the brook Besor. The brook Besor, by the way, is about 12 to 15 miles south of Ziklag. It is the border of Philistine territory. And we find at this point, 200 of his 600 men are just simply exhausted. It was a three-day march to get home. They got home and nothing was there. No food, no supplies, no nothing. Now another 12 to 15 mile march. In fact, this word exhausted in the Hebrew comes from the root word for Hebrew for a corpse. 
They are dead tired. They could go no further. Now, what happens next? They found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David. And they gave him bread, and he ate. And they gave him water to drink. And they gave him a piece of a cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived. For he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. This is God's providence at work. They find a dehydrated Egyptian. They literally have to rehydrate him and give him some food so he could even talk because he is so close to being near death. And look what happens. This Egyptian, they just happen to find. And David said to him, To whom do you belong? And where are you from? He said, I'm a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite. And my master left me because I fell sick three days ago. We had made a raid against the Negev of the Carathites and against that which belongs to Judah and against the Negev of Caleb and we burned Ziklag with fire. Bingo! This dehydrated Egyptian becomes the key to David's entire rescue plan. When his Amalekite master discarded him like trash, three days before, he had no idea that God was having him do that so David would find him and this man would lead David and his men right to them better than find my friend on your iPhone app. And the, the bullet point is this, God's providence helps those who are walking with him. Now when David said to him, Will you take me down to this band? And he said, Swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hand of my master, and I will take you down to this band. Look what happens when he gets there. And when he had taken them down, behold, they were spread abroad over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. Well, this is great. David and his men get there. They're defenseless. They're spread out and they're stone drunk. You know, usually when you attack people, you want to have the element of surprise. But the element of surprise on drunk people is even better. And then we read this. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day. And not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken. And David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought it all back. David waited until it was evening, and they were really drunk. And then during the night, he began to take them out. Now, it says that only 400 of these Amalekites got away. Well, if only 400 got away, how many do you think there were? Thousands of them. And David annihilates all of them. And the text emphasizes that David rescued everything and everyone. One, David didn't just get back the wives and the children and the stuff that the Amalekites had stolen from him. 
but he got back the stuff they had stolen from everybody else. And I think there's an important point for us to notice here. The God that can take everything from us is also capable of restoring everything to us, isn't he? The same God that can ruin our life to get us to our knees, to bring us back to him is very gracious, very kind, and very loving. And he's often quick to restore us, quick to use us, and quick to bless us in ways we do not even deserve. Amen? I think we all can say amen for that. Now I want to look at this just for a moment panoramically. There's a chronology that we won't see too much until we get to next week's chapter. But the point is this. In next week, in chapter 31, Saul will die on Mount Gilboa. Saul is dying at the hand of the Philistines, and we know that this is originally because he disobeyed the Lord back in 1 Samuel 15. He refused to wipe out the Amalekites like God had told him to do. At the same time Saul is dying in the north for his disobedience of not killing the Amalekites, David is in the south wiping out the very same people group, the thing that Saul failed to do. Now, 400 do get away, but he makes a pretty good um, job of wiping them out. Now, the last point I want to give you is this. This is so encouraging. We've seen, you know, that God ruins a life to save a life. And then when God saves a life, he's quick to begin using that life. But this is amazing. God also is quick to transform a heart. David had been a ruthless deceiver and killer. But now that he's come back to God, I want you to notice the change that has taken place in his character. God's grace transforms a deceptive heart into a gracious and generous one. David also captured all the flocks and the herds, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, This is David's spoil. That David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David, and who had been left at the brook Besor. And they went out to meet David, and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, huh, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children, and then depart. How is David going to handle this? But David said, You shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. David says, we're not going to do that. We're not going to be that way. David's point is God graciously protected us. God graciously gave us this victory. The reason we won the battle is not because we're so skillful and good and wise. There was 400 of us versus thousands of them. It's because God is so gracious to us. As we have been recipients of God's grace, 
we must, he says, extend God's grace to others. Do you see how God has changed David's heart? The man who was the ruthless liar, the ruthless deceiver, when he's turned back to God, has been a man that has been overwhelmed by God's grace, that now he wants to extend God's grace to other people. If you're a backslider this morning, if you've walked away from God, you need to know that when you come back to God, one of the first evidences of having been restored into a relationship with the living Lord is the grace that God has shown to you will be the grace that starts to come out of you. That's how God transforms a heart. So the bullet point there is when we experience God's grace, we extend God's grace. And then it continues. When David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, Here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. It was for those in Bethel, in Ramoth of the Negeb, in Jatir, in Aror, in Shipmoth, in Eshtima, in Rachel, in the cities of the Jermalites, in the cities of the Kenites, in Hormah, in Borshan, in Ath, I can't even pronounce that one, Athak, in Hebron, and all the places where David and his men had roamed. By the way, David and his men had not just roamed in these cities, but these were the cities where the Amalekites had raided and took stuff from. And because God had touched, touched David's heart, he became not just a gracious man, but a generous man, giving to these people and these cities spoil that he had taken from the Amalekites to help them in their time of need. Folks, when we experience God's generosity, we cannot help but extend generosity. Now, let me just wrap this up here. How does God show grace to the backslidden? We've seen four ways. Number one, God saves us from ourselves. We've made a mess of life. We've ruined life. God saves us from ourselves and we weren't even asking for it because he is so good and so gracious to us just like he was to David. God is so gracious that he may ruin our life to save our life, breaks us to brings us back home. And number three, God's grace is quick to restore us and to use us. You know, God didn't say to David, okay, now that you've turned back to me, we have three years in the penalty box. And then after you've proved yourself, I'll begin to do something with your life. Absolutely not. As soon as David returned to him, God began to use him. If you're somebody who has backslidden in your faith, you need to know that. As soon as you return to God, God will begin using you in ways to grow his kingdom, in ways to make eternal differences in this world, and to change people's lives. He won't make you sit in the penalty box. And lastly is this, God's grace transforms a deceptive heart into a gracious and generous one. We saw that so clearly, how David's heart was radically changed. If you are somebody who has backslidden from God, know that if you turn back to him, as soon as you experience God's grace in your life, when you turn back to him, his grace will begin to overflow through your life into all your relationships with other people. And as God has been so generous to you, you will be generous to others. The last thing I want to say is, is I was 
in my office and working on this message and studying this text and writing down thoughts, I had a very distinct impression that this was not just a message that I was writing to share with you, that there is somebody here, either in this room or watching online that needs to hear this. Because you may have known God, but you walked away from God and you're trying to live life on your own strength. You're trying to live life on your own wisdom and you wonder, could I ever come back? Yes, you can. God loves you. He offers to forgive you. He's been protecting you. If your life has fallen apart, it's because he's trying to get a hold of you. Come back to him. He will use you and his grace will overflow through your life. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Your word which is living, which is active. Thank you for these two chapters of how you rescued David when he had walked away. Lord, if there's anyone here who has walked away from you, I pray that these chapters would get a hold of them and bring them back to you. And they would see the grace and love that you have for them even now. And Father, we know that all of us have needed these chapters. There's been times and periods in our lives for each of us where we've dove into sin, dove into our own wisdom and ways and not relied on you. Thank you so much for not giving up on us, for not saying, huh, let them have it. Let them have their own way. Let them fry. But for not being that kind of God, but the God who continues to pursue us, continues to love us, and continues to call to us even when we don't deserve any of it. Thank you for being so good and gracious. We ask this in your name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. A complete archive of sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thank you for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.